you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where looking back on it, I really had some questionable taste in music. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Sean Eagle, and it's my job on the show to cover the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy Gardner, again, is only tangentially mentioned in the book, as the Warriors Bar plays prominently into the first book, Green Lantern number 117. But it only plays sort of an ancillary role, as most of the role is the sort of drama that we don't really get to see all that much in the Green Lantern books. Kyle is having an art show, where he's taking a very abstract painting to be shown to friends and onlookers and members of the JLA. But unfortunately, before he can get the art painting there, art painting really, before he can get the painting there, he's having to go by the Warriors Bar and check it out. Unfortunately, the Warriors Bar is inhabited by an active Manhunter robot, which of course is dead set on killing Kyle and all sentient life on Earth. Luckily, Kyle's able to take him out. Spoilers. But what really is nice about this story is that it is essentially a downtime issue. Aside from the little fighting that we have with Kyle and Manhunter, this is one of those issues that is driven by the plot and the drama and the characterization. It's not a big universe-spanning, fighty McFightenstein crossover thing. It's just a really good story. We've also got another really good story in one of our annuals. Imagine that. This time, it's annual number six, which is a part of the Pulp Heroes crossovers that came out in the year 1997. It's a really interesting story that, in a way, also has to deal with art. Kind of the uh, sort of J.R.R. Tolkien, Edgar Rice Burroughs type art. Kyle buys an obscure piece of art from an obscure painter, and as luck or contrivance of the plot would have it, 
Kyle gets sucked into the painting and into the world where those characters in the painting live. And then Kyle has to use his Green Lantern ring to try and work his way around in the shootverse. It's a really good story, and it's probably, so far, one of the better annuals that I've read in this in this run. Um, like I've said before, most of the times the annuals are a mixed bag, but so far the past couple of ones have just really been great. There's some really great art by Jeff Johnson in there. Ron Mars does the story, so he knows how to tackle Kyle. It's a wonderful homage to the characters of Edgar Rice Burroughs, and it's, like I said, just a fun read. So, I will be getting to that, as well as Green Lantern number 117, as well as a few of your emails, right after this. Hey, Obi-Wan, your lightsaber's showing. Take a bath, Pete. Live long and good. Suck it, Frodo. I'm sick of being a goddamn scarecrow. I'll give this podcast thing a try. Two! here to chew bubble gum and kick your ass. Wow, you've gone from very fine to near mint. What a man. Size matters not. TwoTrueFreaks.com This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. And welcome back, everyone. Let's go ahead and do the thing that I like to do. Well, aside from that. I mean, the thing I like to do on the internet. Well, aside from that as well. No, it's read your email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And this time out, we're going to start out with an email from 
frequent letter writer from the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. He entitles his letter, Kyle Gets the Hottest Girls, and he said to be, Hey, Sean, I'm going to spoil the Greenlander New Gardens Guardians Annual number two for you and tell you that Kyle added another notch to his belt of hot girlfriends, Carol Ferris, and he has a picture attached with has, I guess, the White Lantern Kyle just uh, smooching on old Carol Ferris's star sapphire. So, yeah, there you go. Kyle and Carol are sitting in a tree whatever i've been listening to the lantern cast a lot now and they're getting sort of the same feel that that it's just kind of wonky and out there carol going for kyle of course hal being kind of a ineffectual jerk and not really not being the hal that we knew is just kind of disappointing them with the new stuff i don't want to dissuade people from reading the new comics, but it just hasn't grabbed my attention like this old stuff has. So if you're enjoying it, cool. I mean, from what I see of the image, it's really nice looking art, but why Carol and Kyle? It doesn't make any sense, but if it's selling, there you go. After that, we've got an email from podcaster extraordinaire, Mr. Tom Penrys, host of Pop Culture Affidavit the Nam podcast in country, as well as Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast. All excellent, excellent shows, which you should be checking each and every one of them out. I love, uh, you know, I know Trentus Magnus on his show just uh, related how much he enjoys Pop Culture Affidavit, and Tom is looking at uh, the 19, not the 1990s as a whole, but 1994 in specific, and doing his best of comics and best of songs of that year, saying how influential a year it was of the 90s. And his recent shows on Pop Culture Affidavit, talking about the 90s comics, including uh, Zero Hour and uh, what came out then, as well as, you know, he did one on Green Day's Dookie. And I'm trying to remember what the most recent one he did, but he's doing a great a great show talking about 90s stuff over there. Plus the knob. He just recently had an interview with Wayne Van Zant, the artist for the book. And that was really engaging. Plus things are changing over in the nom book. We're getting for, away from the original characters and getting a new group of characters in. Uh, I'm really enjoying that. I've got to try and hunt down some of those nom issues. Cause that's been an enjoyable read. And of course He's talking about Robin through the decades, and just recently, as of this recording, he released the one that was dealing with Robin in the 90s, so really good stuff over there. All of his podcasts, go listen to them. But he writes in uh, with the title of his email, Episode 1 Million, saying, Sean, with life and work once again taking one of those busy turns, I found myself in podcast debt, and that means I've fallen way behind on just one of the guys. I finished listening to your episode covering DC 1 million and wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. That was that was a really fun time doing that with Stephen Lacey. And I, again, credit to Stephen for bringing his A game to that because I basically had the knowledge of the DC 1 million crossover, just the crossover proper, and wasn't all that up on all the ancillary stuff. So Steve brought a lot to that podcast. Continuing on, he says, I remember owning the core DC 1 million miniseries, but I don't think I read any more, read it more than once and only owned a few of the crossovers. I'm not sure why I neglected to fully collect the crossovers, but I'm going to chalk it up to a lack of money at the time. 
Yeah, collecting all those would be, you know, even at like a dollar ninety nine a pop would have been pretty outrageous, especially if you weren't collecting the titles proper anyway. He says it's a shame, too, because as you and Stephen went through the issues and the crossovers, it made me want to read it again. In fact, it made me want to buy the omnibus. Well, if you do, even though I'm not associated, go to in-stock trades. You'll get a, a pretty good deal, almost half off on it. So there you go. Alas, once again, I don't have the money for that. None of us do, unfortunately. But perhaps one day I'll have enough to get it at a discount. As always, the show is awesome, and I guess the one good thing about being so many episodes behind is that I don't have to wait another week for more Green Lantern awesomeness. Well, thank you, Tom. That's that's really that's really nice of you. He says, keep up the good work and take care, Tom. Well, thank you, Tom. Again, at the beginning of this email, I said I listen to every one of Tom's shows, and you should be as well. If you're not into Robin, if you're not into the Nom. Just give them a listen because Tom's, especially the Nom podcast, that's the one that I've really been enjoying because he's not only taking a very obscure comic that that probably got lost uh, amongst the G.I. Joes of the Marvel Universe because it was coming out around the same time. and It's a really engaging tale. It's well-written and very thought-provoking at times. And Tom not only covers the comic, but he also takes a good amount of time talking about the letters column and some of the people who have written in, some being very adamant about what they're doing in the NOM being a really good thing and promoting the idea of what went on in the uh, Vietnam conflict, but also having uh, the author sort of rebuke or rebut people who came in and wrote into the comic saying that this stuff is just over-the-top jingoism. So I like that he addresses that as well in the podcast. Definitely go out and listen to Tom's shows. But that wraps it up for email this time. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. If you'd like to write into the show, the email address for the show is justoneofthegueyspodcast at gmail.com. I take all kinds of emails, whether it be praise or criticism. I'm more associated with criticism because I'm a nerd and because I talk about Guy Gardner and Yes, Guy Gardner's probably not one of people's favorites, favorite characters, but I'm willing to accept that criticism. So if you want to write in, please do so. I'd love to read your email on the show. But that's it for the email bag. Let's close that up and get into issue 117 of Green Lantern. This comic had a cover date of October 1999 and a release date of August 11, 1999. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics is the place for that kind of information. Go check it out at dcindexes.com. Cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada, and the title was Found Art. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Daryl Banks, inker Terry Austin, colorist Rob Schwager, letterer Chris Heliopoulos, still life was Harvey Richards, and abstract, again, Kevin Dooley. We open our story with Kyle Rayner being choked to death. Okay, this might need a little bit of explaining, so let's cut to a couple of hours earlier at Kyle's apartment, where the struggling artist is putting the final touches on a painting he plans to exhibit at an upscale gallery showing. The celebration over his completion is quelled by roommate Jenny Lynn Hayden, who comments on the happier feel of this new painting. Kyle says the change is due to a lot of things. The art show, his feelings of acceptance in the Justice League, and especially his relationship with Jenny. Kyle apologizes for being so caught up in his work, both heroic and non, 
and wonders how he can make it up to her. Kyle suggests dinner, and Jenny suggests a possible after-dinner lingerie show featuring her as the exclusive model. Obviously, Kyle is down with that, but first he has to check in on the Warriors Bar for Guy Gardner as he's away in Vegas. Ringing up his uniform, Kyle heads out with the painting in tow, with plans of meeting Jenny at the gallery later tonight. At the Warriors Bar, Kyle muses about the museum-type feel of the bar. Certain that Guy wouldn't mind if he grabbed a soda for his troubles, Kyle drops behind the bar to look for a glass when a beam of energy blasts his art portfolio. Turning around, Kyle sees that the Manhunter robot that was occupying one of the display cases in the bar has suddenly become active and wants to fulfill its programming of destroying imperfection. Of course, with the destruction of his painting, Kyle is mightily pissed, and the Mephiti McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out between the two former tools of the Guardians. This fight rages throughout the bar and out into the street, until Kyle is able to distract the menacing android by ringing up a construct image of a Guardian's floaty head. This distracts the Manhunter long enough for Kyle to lop off the mechanoid's head with one swing of its mighty axe. Crisis averted, Kyle now wonders what he's going to do about his art exhibition. As luck would have it, Kyle shows his talent for improvisation as he displays the destroyed head of the Manhunter as his piece at the gallery. His bold commentary on the increasing dehumanization of man is not lost on his agent Simone, who offers to do some bottling for him if he ever wants to see if she's got the fire down below, in a manner of speaking. Kyle deflects her advances and introducing, by introducing Raydu to Simone, then sneaks off to meet with the other partygoers, including Green Arrow Connor Hawk, Barda, and Plastic Man, blind parton mate Cleveland, Jon Stewart, Marin, Jenny, and Alan Scott. Things are going well for Kyle, as Jenny pulls him aside to see if he'd like to expedite those dinner and nookie plans, and Kyle says he's completely ready for that, but just to let him say a few goodbyes. However, those goodbyes might take a little bit longer, as a final guest has arrived. Kyle's former love, Donna Troy. This is another great issue that melds the mundane day-to-day life of Kyle with the heroic adventures of Green Lantern. Other podcasters like Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble have complained about the current crop of Green Lantern books seemingly jumping from event to event and not allowing for any quote-unquote downtime to further the character interaction. This again is why I think this era succeeds over the current books, simply for that fact. Kyle and his mundane supporting cast get equal billing in the book giving the reader a time to decompress after every big battle or event. It's a nice contrast between what we have. I know we people are expecting action, action, action in comics, but that's not necessarily a good thing. It, it, gets, it gets annoying. It wears you out. It makes you feel that you're constantly running a race. And these little episodes where you can just have a sort of quiet time where you're doing simple, mundane things that further further the character and advance the character in a way are what really make, especially these books, in my opinion, some of the better ones out there. And speaking of being better, I've got to say, starting with the cover, my coverage of this, I don't know what happened. 
Banks and Austin are really gelling here with a very detailed, not at all muddy cover depicting Kyle getting punched by the Manhunter. Everything on this cover looks amazing. Kyle looks great. The inking that was really thick around the characters is a little bit there, but it allows them to sort of pop off the page as well. The background art with uh, Howl in the glass dome really looks great. Everything about this just screams good artwork. Maybe Austin and Banks have finally gotten together and are starting to put together a much better artistic design in the book. Because, as you know, over the past almost couple of months, I've been really complaining about Austin and Banks on the book. And this is a complete 180 from that. I think the artwork here is the kind of artwork that a lot of people associate with this book from this time. And it's it's glorious. And then moving into the book on page one, it, it just continues here with the thick line work all but gone except for a few things that allow the character of the Manhunter's gloves or the Manhunter's gloves to sort of pop out from the book. Everything else is just really detailed, uh, especially the look of Kyle's mask. The inking on that is just Amazing. I have no idea what was limiting the greatness that we see here from previous issues, but I'm really, really glad that Austin Banks are bringing the awesome back to the book again. Page three, panel one. Um, I might not be much of an art critic, but I don't get the impressionist look of Kyle's painting. I mean, I suppose it's just there to carry on the narrative that Kyle has finally accepted his role as Green Lantern and all his angsty past is just that in the past. But it's a really weird, abstract-looking painting. It looks like, to be honest, it looks like Kyle painted something and then just smudged it all. It's... Like I said, I like my art to actually look like something. The whole abstract stuff like Jackson Pollock type stuff, or even the more surrealistic art of Picasso or stuff like that just doesn't work for me. I like my art to look like stuff. So I'm certain there are people who enjoy this even more, but uh, we'll see that this artwork doesn't get, uh, doesn't get the thumbs up from too many people or doesn't really get to seen by too many people. So whether that's a good thing or not, there you go. Then on page four, this is uh, exactly what I was talking about in my opening spiel about the book. We've got a simple, one simple page of Kyle and Jenny talking about their relationship. No heroics, no Green Lantern constructs, no fighting, just a really well thought out page of two characters talking. And it completely and totally works. It shows that this book has more to offer than just giant space battles against insurmountable odds. You can have a good, entertaining book and put in simple, emotional drama in it. It's awesome. Or as the guys from Tinder for Geeks would say, it's awesome. Moving on to page five. Now, I'm not completely going to say that everything in the book is artistically perfect. There's a few minor things, especially this first panel here where Kyle is recharging his ring and he's got... You have the beams of light from him energizing the ring, splitting his face, so he's got sort of a divided two-face type look. But also, the, I guess, the right side of his face, 
looks a little creepy. It's got kind of Joker face there, so that's just kind of odd. But the artwork is completely made up for by the picture of Jenny on the final panel on the page. In fact, looking at this, I was kind of reminded of the TV show Friends, and I'm wondering if Banks was kind of drawing from character designs of that show, because Jenny has sort of a kind of a pose and a look of something that you'd see out of that, a kind of Jennifer Aniston type look. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, in my opinion. Page eight, yeah. It's kind of a mistake on Guy Gardner's fall, on Guy Gardner's part that he didn't check to make sure that this manhunter that he was displaying in a case at his bar wasn't capable of powering up. So, not the best move on Mr. Gardner's part. Page 10, this is kind of neat. Like we saw in previous issues, Kyle creates some constructs of quote-unquote friends in the DC universe to help him out, including the Jim Ballant, I Like Boobs, Catwoman, and a Rick Burchett, Ty Templeton-looking Superman. So it's nice that Banks is sort of aping the art styles of those characters because the Superman definitely isn't... It isn't a Banks Superman. It's very much the Superman Adventures Superman. So that's kind of cool. I like that in the book. And then moving on to page 12, panel 2, we get even more Construct Friends in the guise of the three different looks for Guy Gardner. We've got, uh, from left to right, the original, or the warrior Guy Gardner, him in his original Green Lantern uniform, and in the JLI uniform. It really looks awesome. And then on the same page, on panel 5, he rings up a hockey goalie uniform to protect him from the Manhunter smashing him with a lamppost. So, really nice constructs that Kyle is using in this book. And uh, like I've said... Banks's and Austin's art is just really gelling very well here. It's all looking really good. Page 16. I think it was a brilliant move on Kyle's part to ring up an image of one of the Guardians to distract the Manhunter. And I guess it's very fortuitous that the Manhunters are colorblind as well. So that helps. But then page 18, and after the fighting with Feitenstein, we are back to the real-world drama. And... I'm glad to see Simone come back in all of her sort of sleazy, managerial ways. It, it's a really fun character, and it's a character that you don't see in these comics. And it, again, it adds to the tapestry of the comic by giving them a supporting cast rather than just the main hero. Plus, I love how Kyle pawns Simone off on radio. I'm, I'm not certain if anything comes from this, but it really would be interesting to see if the two of them became a couple. Um, like I said, I'm not certain. It's been a long time since I've read the issues following this, so it could happen, but I'm not putting my money on it, and I'm not saying it does either. Down on page 19, it's also good to see that the JLA members have come out to the art show. It again shows that the superhero community just doesn't always have to be in tights and capes, and sometimes can actually lead normal, regular lives. This is great. This is what comics need to be, a blending of the mundane and the super and the amazing. If they could do this more often, I think comics would would have a broader appeal. But then we get to page 22, the final page, and it's a one-page one splash of Donna walking in on Kyle and Jenny to Donna's right looking very shocked at her being here and the way the art looks, Donna is really impeccably drawn to make her look 
far more radiant than Jenny, especially especially in the sexuality area, because she's got this off-the-shoulder, really tight black mini dress that's, like I said, exposing her shoulders and a lot of her cleavage, so it's very eye-catching, and Jenny, although she is incredibly attractive and drawn really well in this, kind of pales into comparison. Plus, Jenny's also obscured by Kyle's arm, kind of putting her in the background and bringing Donna forward. So you see there's going to be confrontation from just the way this, just the way the art is being displayed on this page. It's it's going to be really interesting to see what happens between these two characters and what happens between actually these three characters with Jenny and Kyle. So we'll be getting into that next issue. But that does it for the book. Let's go ahead and look through it and see what kind of ads we have. It's the 90s, folks, so let's see what they've got for us. Starting with the inside cover, they've got that advertisement again, the uh, big open mouth with a tongue with a post-it note on it saying, Kick Me. It's the advertisement for Spree, the the sweet tarts with a candy coating. So yeah, if you enjoy those, kick someone in the tongue. And I guess you're not hip unless you're wearing L2 Levi's clothing, which you can find at Sears, Goodies, Kohl's, and Mervyn's. Mervyn's? Okay, I've never heard of that, but it's a California thing, so I probably would have heard of it anyway. Then the next page is an ad for the DC Universe role-playing game, and if you want to hear a little bit more about the DC Universe role-playing game, maybe not this iteration of it, but a prior iteration of it, go check out the Fire and Water podcast. Shag and and Siskoid from Siskoid's blog Geekery are doing a show on DC... Uh, it's not this one, but it's a DC role-playing game, so I'm wondering if eventually they'll get into this iteration of it. It's, it's some nice art. It's the essentially the Morrison JLA with Superman, Batman, uh, Hook-Handed Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Kyle Rainer, Green Lantern, and Martian Manhunter. It, it looks cool. It says, Fight Crime, Crush Evil, Live the Adventure. DC Universe role-playing game coming early this fall. So, ah, huh, kind of neat. If you're into role-playing games, you know, I never got into role-playing games really outside of Dungeons & Dragons, but, you know, I will have to listen to see if Shag does any more of these episodes of the uh, DC role-playing game thing, so maybe he'll talk about this later. But from DC Heroes, we go to uh, kind of creepy heroes, as we've got an image from behind of what I guess is either a superhero or a professional wrestler with a very tight, tidy whitey undergarments ironing his suit with gold lame boots on and long flowing Fabio hair. It's an advertisement for nextplanetover.com, which they say is the best place for comics. I don't know what this is, but from the look of this thing, it's probably a site where creepy cosplayers hook up. <laughs> Next page, please. And the next page is for, well, something different. It's Mario Golf for the Nintendo 64. And this is weird. It's got an advertisement for a... It's got an advertisement for the game, and it's got some screen images from the Nintendo 64 version of Golf. But the advertisement on it says, Oh, good. Now they'll let anyone play as they have a 10-fingered fit-right glove for golfing, whatever that means. So is... Mario Golf, 
discriminating against people with tin fingers? I don't get it. Then moving on to the book, I know Michael Bradley and I talked about this. It's another ad for the Three Musketeers bar, and it's that... It's really weird. They're trying to ape a movie poster type thing with these very... Not amateurish, but very simplified-looking CGI characters of D'Artagnan, Arthos, and Porthos. But what happened to Aramis? I mean, is he not good enough to be with the Three Musketeers? Or maybe it's his religious values that is keeping him out from eating this delicious, delicious chocolate. Could be. The middle of a book has a two-page advertisement for South Seas Banana Company and Ape Escape, which has... A truckload of bananas spilled on a highway while tons of, not apes, chimpanzees uh, run around and do things with the bananas. And probably fling poop as well, because there you go. Then there's some more Coke in the 90s goodness, where I guess you can get a Coca-Cola card, which will get you discounts on Coca-Cola merchandise or whatever. It's the IYDKYDG.com thing that... I've so, so enjoyed over the past couple of issues, in a way that I completely haven't. Then after that, there's a very, a very dark, and not dark as in grim or, you know, uncomfortable to look at, but just dark as in colored uh, advertisement that's an anti-drug advertisement. It says drugs are only going to hinder what I'm trying to do, as you've got this film strip of a person... I guess doing a very crazy skateboarding stunt and spinning around. No idea who this is, but I guess it's for the Partnership for a Drug-Free America, and the at the email, or not the email, the URL for it is www.freevibe.com. I guess don't do drugs, kids. Does this make you not want to do drugs? Well, whatever. And then the next page, of course, is the mini-disc again. Yeah, the failed uh, version of the small CD that Sony tried to put out that went pretty much nowhere. I don't know too many people who are touting the veracity of the mini-disc, so it's a while away before Apple comes out with the iPod, which again would revolutionize portable music. Then you've got another ad for JNCO clothing, I guess, with another skater. I guess the X Games are getting very popular now, so yeah, you've got a skater person doing stunts. Chris Livingston? No idea. This is this is way beyond me. I was I was an old fart by this time, so skating wasn't my deal. Then the next page is an advertisement for a football game that isn't Madden that I guess got a lot of accolades, uh, including uh, number one football game of the year for the Nintendo 64 and Game Boy and the best Nintendo Nintendo 64 sports game. It's NFL Blitz 2000, and yeah, it looks pretty derivative of the Madden games. Uh, maybe uh, this was just one that got overshadowed by the, Madden, by the Madden games. But it's actually out for the PC, for the Nintendo 64, Game Boy Color, the PlayStation 1, and the Sega Dreamcast, which I think, unfortunately, was pretty much on its way out. Sad, Sega. Then nearing in the book, we've got an advertisement for Shadowgate 64, Trials of the Four Towers, which I guess is a a first-person RPG for the Nintendo 64. Never heard of it. Never heard of Vatical Entertainment either, so... 
yeah, this was one that I think came and went. The back inside cover has an advertisement for the Game Boy Color, and it's a little baseball game they've got on it. It looks kind of neat. Of course, it's still not quite the Game Boy Advance with the flip-up screen, which would eventually morph into the Nintendo DS and the Nintendo 3DS and all the advancements that came out. But hey, it's in color, so there's a step up. And then finally, on the back outside cover, we get Reach Out and Crush Someone. It's Monster Truck Madness 64, so you could play monster trucks like Bigfoot or Gravedigger or whatever else and go run over things on a video game. So, yeah, there you go. Well, that does it for this comic. Again, really enjoyed it. But I'm really going to enjoy the next comic I'm going to be covering, and that one is Green Lantern Annual number six. I'm looking forward to getting to it right after I play these podcast promos. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. And this time out, we're going to be taking a look at Green Lantern Annual Number 6. It was a part of the Pulp Heroes crossover for the year of 1997, the year this was released. It was released on August 13th of 97 and had a cover price of 3.95 US and 5.50 Canada. The title was Worlds Within Worlds and the writer was Ron Mars. The pencils were done by Jeff Johnson, inks by John Callas, letters Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Dana Curtin, editor Kevin Dooley, and the cover was by Gary Gianni. Imagination's the thing. One of my professors in art school told me that when I asked him what separates the talents from the imitators, the Matisses from the guys who'll paint you an impressionist knockoff just the right size to hang over your couch. Imagination's the thing. He was trying to tell me it's not about technique and color theory and everything else they trot out to you when they teach you to be an artist. It's about what they can't teach you, what you have to bring to the blank page or the empty canvas yourself. It's the spark that allows you to create something important. And sometimes, even that's not enough. Sebastian Beals, one of the great unknown illustrators. He did a handful of paperback covers for small publishers in the 60s. Really amazing work. Realistic and fantastical all at once. But he never got the recognition he deserved. 
Maybe he crossed an art director. Maybe he was a flake. Who knows why? Beale just seemed to drop off the face of the earth. Hardly anybody cared then, and absolutely nobody does now. It must be terrible to have your life's work ignored, never to be recognized and sort of just disappear. Beale was an immensely talented guy, and nobody outside a few collectors even remembers him. It makes me question my own work. Am I doing anything worthwhile? Sure, imagination's a thing, but I don't know if I have enough of it. This brings us to our opening scene, where freelance artist Kyle Rayner is attending an art auction where he's just purchased a very Frazetta-like painting by an artist named Sebastian Peel. Packing the painting up, Kyle switches to Green Lantern and flies back to his apartment, stopping to rescue a fallen construction worker along the way. Arriving home, Kyle hangs the painting above his sofa, much to girlfriend Jenny Lynn Hayden's chagrin. Jenny says she's not really into the whole high-fantasy artwork thing, but she thinks it'll grow on her, while Kyle marvels at the amount of imagination that it must have taken to create the image. As Jenny heads into the kitchen to get to something to drink, Kyle takes a closer look at the fine details of the painting, until suddenly he's drawn into the painting itself, frightening the dinosaur carrying a scantily clothed princess. The Vallejo vixen falls into the path of some oncoming lava, and Kyle leaps into action as Green Lantern. However, when he rings up his uniform, it's not the traditional one, but a very John Carter slash Conan the Barbarian outfit. To make matters worse, his ring isn't working as usual either, as he can't fly down to rescue the princess. But luckily, he's able to ring up a rope to pull the princess out of the path of the Molten Magma. Wondering how to get his ring to work properly, Cal just goes with it and is able to create a futuristic jet cycle to rescue himself, the princess, and her two remaining guards from the approaching lava. Crisis averted, the quartet sat down a ways away from the carnage and began with the plot exposition. The girl is Saria Amenthus, Princess of Jeth, and the BP guys are her royal guards, Eth Chaj and Eth Neth. They are on a quest to seek the God Mage to petition him to spare their world from disaster, and they would like a great warrior like Kyle to accompany them on this quest. Thinking that this God Mage might be his ticket back to the real world, Kyle agrees to help the warrior trio. What follows is a near Tolkien level of trekking through various perils and landscapes of the world of Nagia, including man-eating plants, a sea where you can breathe water, a race of bipedal amphibians, flying eels, and floating cities. Eventually, after what seems like months of traveling, our heroes reach the palace of the God Mage and attempt to discover how to stop the world from slipping away. Entering the palace, as the mysterious force eats away at the world, Kyle and company find that the God Mage is none other than the creator of the painting, Sebastian Beale. Old and tired, the artist says that he was somehow able to enter the world that he created, and now, as he's ending his time, so is the world he created. Kyle offers to help, but Sebastian says it's too late for all of them, as Saria and the rest fade into nothingness. But Kyle feels that if he uses the last bit of energy left in his ring, maybe he can save this reality. And with that, Kyle, along with the help of Sebastian, begin to recreate the entire world the two have both imagined and witnessed. In the end, Kyle is able to bring everything back, but at the cost of completely draining his ring. However, the revitalized Beale claims that he can send Kyle back if he wanted to. Kyle debates the idea of staying with a woman he helped rescue, and also a smoking hot, or going back to his responsibilities in the real world, and chooses the latter. 
clicking his heels together three times, Cal is transported back to his apartment, immediately after the time he fell into the painting. Jenny comes in and wonders why Kyle is babbling about not having a beard, make your own jokes there, until she notices that the painting Kyle brought home has completely changed. Jenny tells Kyle that he's got some splaining to do, and Kyle relents, telling her that, really, he's not making this up. In all honesty, the annuals just keep getting better and better. This has got some really great artwork by Johnson, who I fell in love with from issue 101, and this issue 101 wouldn't come out for about a year, so this is kind of his first work doing Green Lantern comics. Really nice. Plus, it's also got some amazing storytelling by Ron Mars. It definitely evokes the John Carter, man-out-of-time feel of those pulp novels of long ago. And Mars is clever enough not only to set the story in that genre, but also to make metatextual commentary on it. Kyle is constantly quipping that, hey, this feels like a John Carter book, or this feels like a Tolkien book. So he knows that he's in this thing, but not only is him as the hero's Green Lantern, he's able to become the hero of this sort of pulp world. It's an interesting story. It's In some ways, it's kind of stereotypical. You know, the hero falls into a mystical realm that's being destroyed, and it just happens to be the artist who created this realm who's causing it to be destroyed. It's not a unique story, but it's well done. So I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Another good annual. And the annual is really served well by the cover art here that's done by an artist called Gary Gianni. He's probably best known for doing some of the art on the Prince Valiant comic strip, and he also did a lot of the art for the Pulp Heroes annuals this year. It definitely invokes a very John Carter Flash Gordon-like feel, with Kyle being the bare-chested person with a sort of rapier in his hand, defending the flailing, well, not flailing, the fainting princess from a group of armored thugs. It's it's a really good artwork. It's really good artwork. Um, and like I said, very evocative of those pulp novels, which I'm assuming it was supposed to be evocative of. Pages two and three, we get a really nice two-page splash of the world of Narnia, or whatever it is. No, Najida. One of those sort of fantasy-sounding type realms. But what's really nice on here is the dinosaur that the princess is riding on. Now, granted, it's not a Mitch Bird level of dinosaur, but personally, in my opinion, you don't get much better than Mitch Bird-drawn dinosaurs. He's just great at it. Then on page four, we get the realization that this was Kyle looking at this image at an art auction, and Kyle says that he was there to buy a Lion Decker piece. And looking up, Lion Decker is an actual artist who created artwork during 
all the time of Norman Rockwell. He's sort of a contemporary of him. Probably what you would most recognize him for would be those sort of military-type posters where you've got the sort of grizzled GI hawking, like, war bonds or whatever, or saying that loose loose lips sink ships. He's kind of a contemporary of, like I said, Norman Rockwell, and has that very realistic look. Then moving on to page five, again, I've got a comment about Johnson's artwork. It is just really stunning. He does a lot of details, especially in this one panel where Kyle's flying along the buildings in New York City. Some of the... A lesser artist, I think, wouldn't put this kind of detail in, but you've got various different amounts of reflection on some of the windows on the buildings where some of them are dark and some of them are light. It's just really good background art. In fact, even back into the very far background, the artwork is very detailed. I I like that someone takes their time in doing this, and Johnson's just... He's an amazing artist. It's it's really good that he got him to do this book. Page 8, panel 2. As Jenny was looking in the fridge for something to drink for Kyle, I couldn't help thinking of this incredibly 80s commercial for Sunny Delight. <laughs> Okay, we got OJ, some purple stuff, some soda, Sunny Delight. I'll try Sunny Delight. Okay, yeah. 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 It's good stuff. Yeah. It's got healthy junk. So what? Hey, man, come on. Hey, guys. All right. Hey, yeah. Megan, our name is Mrs. B. Thanks. You got a cool Sunny Delight. Kids get the taste. Moms get the credit. It's just hilariousness. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry. That commercial is completely goofy and the fact that the kids call the mom gnarly just sets it so much in the 80s that <laughs> I can't stop laughing. Page 9, the idea of someone getting sucked into a magical painting isn't all that original. I mean, it's very reminiscent of, like, the never-ending story or whatever is the outside person coming into this fantasy world. But both Mars and Johnson have fun with it, and like I said, I think the metatextual commentary by Kyle about how this feels like it should be a Frazetta penning or it should be a John Carter novel, the fact that he's making that helps take away from the sort of, I guess not really cheesiness, but I think that's the best word you could probably relate to it. Pages 11-12, we get the princess's slave warrior allowing himself to be consumed by the oncoming lava as he lifts the princess out of the uh, lava. First of all, you know, yes, it's very heroic, but it's also completely unrealistic. I know being anywhere near lava, which is at, I believe, I want to say a couple of thousands of degrees Fahrenheit, is going to be remarkably hot. And this princess is right above it. So it's kind of, it's just one of those tropes. I know we dealt with it in the uh, Green Lantern crossover with Superboy, where the two were standing near a lake of lava and just chilling there. But yeah, it's it's heroic, but not realistic. So I'll give it a pass because it's a fantasy. Plus, also on page 13, I think it's a good cheat to make Kyle's ring not function correctly in the story, which means that Kyle has to 
rely on it significantly less than if he were a Green Lantern. In the story now, he has to use his wits, he has to use his guile, and he has to use actual techniques that you would find in a John Carter story, sword fighting, that sort of pulpy feel, rather than just ringing up amazing constructs and saving the day. So I like that aspect of the book. But then moving on to page 21, it's also good that when he thinks of things that would fit into this realm, say, for instance, an axe that he could use to hack away at one of the monsters that are attacking him, the ring easily creates it. The ring's not going to create a big giant manga suit of armor, which is going to allow him to walk around like a, a, a mech warrior, nor is it going to allow him to ring up something that's going to allow them to fly directly to where this god mage is supposed to be. It sets him more in the story, so I, very good stuff here. Pages 23 and 24, we get the beginning of sort of the hero's journey throughout this story, and it starts with Kyle and the rest of the group going into what they call the Breathing Sea, which essentially allows people to breathe underwater. And it's very reminiscent, obviously, of the movie The Abyss, which, of course, Kyle references here. But it's just really cool, especially on page 24, where we see Kyle getting adjusted to the idea that he's able to breathe underwater. There's some inset panels where basically Kyle is holding his breath, then finally breathing in the water and re coming to the realization that he can breathe. And the final inset panel is just him enjoying the heck out of it. And a great panel of him just smiling and having this look on his face of just complete and utter joy that he's able to essentially be Aquaman, to enjoy the underwater and to enjoy this sort of very detailed uh, era of coral. And if you've ever been not just scuba diving, but just snorkeling in an area that's in the ocean and seeing fish float up to you, it's really an amazing thing. And to be able to do that without uh, a, a rebreather or without a scuba tank or anything like that has got to just be incredibly fun. So really good melding of artwork and story here. Johnson does a great job at depicting Kyle's face and the emotions on it. And again, speaking of the artwork, on page 31, we get a really nice cheesecake shot as Saria decides to just drop trow and change in front of Kyle. Of course, on the same page, Kyle brings up a nice sort of Errol Flynn-type swashbuckler, if I can get that word out, swashbuckler outfit, uh, very much Errol Flynn, very much sort of Robin Hood-type looking thing. Again, Johnson artwork in here is just really wonderful. The characters look good. It's it's kind of cartoony, but it's not it's not the sort of Superman the animated series or I guess the Batman Adventures of the Superman Adventures type look. It's it's really good appropriate artwork for the book. On page 35, after Kyle and Saria have been climbing through these trees or not actually climbing, riding a sort of flying fish to the top of the canopy of these trees, we get the image of this floating city with, I guess the way the world is disappearing looks like it's being wiped away from existence, like someone is just taking an eraser and erasing the city. So it's a good way of 
displaying in the artwork how this world is being destroyed. Again, taking a page from the book like a never-ending story, but still doing it in its own manner and doing it very well. Then moving on, pages 36 through 38, we get the trope of Kyle having to spend months in this realm. While we can probably assume at the end of the story, it'll be like he never left. Essentially, it's one of those things where, oh, I dropped into this alternate timeline and had this incredible experience, but it really only happened in the blink of an eye. It's very much like, oh, that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where Captain Picard lived an entire life on this planet with this woman, learned how to play this flute, but actually the entire experience only took 40 minutes as this alien probe was uh, reaching into Picard's mind. It's a nice trope of the storyline. I, Again, Mars does a really good job bringing this into the story. And again, the tropes can come through as the, on page 41, we find out that the quote-unquote god mage that they were trying to petition to save their planet is none other than the artist who created the paintings. Yeah, not a big surprise, but a satisfying one. And it works to the end of the book, because on page 47, we realize that Kyle had to experience this entire hero's journey over this many months of time to allow him to be able to recreate the world with his ring. So, had he not come through this world and seen all the various disparate portions of the land of Nagia, he wouldn't have been able to recreate it at this time. Plus, he did have a revitalized, reinvigorated Beal to help him out, but technically it was Kyle and the ring who was recreating this, pretty much from scratch. Had it not been for this hero's journey, he wouldn't have been able to do it. And then, of course, at the end of it, on pages 49 and 50, Kyle has to make the hero's choice to either stay in this world that he created or return home. And, as you know, Kyle takes the responsibility of having to come back to his own life and his own reality and be the responsible one and be Green Lantern again. So you knew this wasn't going to be Kyle, oh, I'm going to stay here because, well, we've got an ongoing Green Lantern story to do, but it's a really satisfying story with some really great art. This is an annual that if you can find in the cheapy bins or even in the dollar bins, go pick it up because... Really good art, really good story, and just a fun read. I'm betting you could probably find this for under two bucks in some places. Go check it out. But that does it this time for all the books. I'm glad you guys came along to listen, and I hope you'll come along to listen next time out, where we'll be covering Green Lantern number 118, which is a part of the Day of Judgment storyline. Yes, Day of Judgment. It's the storyline where a certain writer named Jeff Johns tries to redeem Hal Jordan. A few years before he tries to redeem Hal Jordan. This time, however, he puts him in the guise of the Spectre rather than the guise of Green Lantern. It'll all make sense next time out. And to help me try and make sense of it, I'm going to enlist the help of a podcast veteran who's Probably got some interesting things to say about the whole Jeff Johns thing. But that'll be in seven days, folks. I hope you guys will come back for me and another podcast great, dealing with Green Lantern and Jenny Lynn Hayden and Donna Troy. And Day of Judgment. 
it'll all be there in seven days, like I just said. Why don't I script these things out better? Anywho, have a good weekend, everyone. We'll catch you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was the band GTR with the song The Hunter, off their album GTR. If you don't know who GTR is, they were basically Steve Hackett from the band Genesis and Steve Howe from the band Yes formed a sort of super group where they played guitars. Normally I would recommend you use the link at twotruefreaks.com to go to amazon.com to pick up the mp3 of this song. Unfortunately, GTR, being the amazing band that they are has not been collected into mp3 format and you'd probably have to buy the original cd which has a new running price of 79.99 trust me gtr is not worth 79.99 however you could use the link at tutorfreaks.com to go to amazon.com to buy a myriad number of other things whether it be cds dvds blu-rays electronics video games anything that you could possibly imagine, at incredibly low prices. So, be thankful that I'm not directing you to buy GTR because, well, let's just face it, it wasn't all that great. But if you do use the link at twotruefreaks.com to buy something from Amazon.com, a small amount of your purchase price will go back to the website. It doesn't cost you anything else, and it really helps the website out. So, anytime you're thinking of buying well, anything from Amazon.com, please be sure to use the link at twotruefreaks.com.